Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello once again, my friend, and welcome in to my closet in Columbus, Ohio, and to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I am your good pal, Clint Davis, and just a little bit we'll be hearing from my good friend and yours, Andy Sedlak. He gives us a music update here on the show. I'm the one who talks about movies and television. It's how we do it every month, and we hope you uh, you enjoy the show. If you do, please spread the word and uh, tell your friends, tell your family. Put something on your Instagram story there. Episode number 85 coming at you here in November. I'm recording this now just days before the Thanksgiving holiday, one that'll probably be unlike any other unless you're going to be one of the, what's it, like 70% of people I read that are just going to do the holiday like normal. They're just still going to drive across the country and go to their you know extended family's house and have all the cousins over and everything and everyone's going to end up you know, dead or in the hospital by the time we get to the new year. I don't know. So uh, I, I'm not here to judge you, but just say it. Maybe take it a little easy this year and just sit at home, make something you enjoy eating, and just watch uh, Charlie Brown Thanksgiving on the Apple Plus app, the Apple TV Plus app, because it's going to be streaming right there for free. Also, PBS is going to be airing it, so you can check it out there. But anyway, welcome into the show. I am Clint Davis. You can follow me uh, on Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis, and you can follow me on Instagram at the same uh, handle as well. I urge you to go over to YouTube and check out Overdue Review there and give me a subscription. And when you're on Instagram, Andy is there as well, at Andy Sedlak. Uh, his last name is spelled S-E-D-L-A-K. And if you're on Spotify, go on and find the perfect playlist. It's the Stream Police Podcast playlist. And if you check it out, you'll get all the songs. Andy always adds five songs every single month on the show. And uh, that's where it lives. It lives on Spotify. You can subscribe to it and listen to it anytime. So real quick, before we uh, really dive into everything here, because we got a lot to talk about on the show this month, I wanted to mention an email that I got that I just thought was fantastic. I got an email from a, a gentleman named Carlos, who works at some company that like does podcasting analytics and you know listenership statistics and stuff like that and basically he's basically he's trying to get me to to subscribe as I would come to find out to their service and like you pay a certain monthly fee and you get like these really detailed analytics on where people are listening to your show and <laughs> the subject of the the email immediately got my attention and I didn't necessarily I didn't think it was spam 
right away. It, it got me to click into it. Anyway, the subject of the email was Stream Police Podcast is ranking very well in Mongolia. And so I was like, wow, okay, let's check this out. So anyway, Carlos says, I have some cool information that might interest you. He writes me up and says, your podcast, the Stream Police Podcast, has good performance in some rankings over the past 30 days. He tells me that out of all TV and film category podcasts, we are ranked 19th in Mongolia. So we are the 19th most popular television and film podcast in all of Mongolia, which is a pretty big it's a pretty big country, okay? I mean, this is not, we're not talking about like, you know, something the size of Rhode Island or something like that, okay? We're not talking about like Liechtenstein or something here, okay? We're talking about Mongolia, pretty big place. And he also told me, a little bonus fact for you, we are ranked 104th in the television and film category in Pakistan, or as my boy Barack Obama always used to say, Pakistan. So 104th in Pakistan and 19th in Mongolia in the television and film category. So there you go. There's some information from our boy Carlos who uh, sent it over to me. I, I declined to uh, pay for their service just because um, I, you know, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really have the money for it or the interest in knowing exactly where we're doing. I mean, what am I going to do with that? But uh, brighter people than me could. I, I guess we need to find like what some big products in Mongolia are and try to get some kind of a sponsorship thing we could andy and i could end up being like bill murray in uh, lost in translation you know he's over in japan like hawking american whiskey we could uh we could do that maybe we could uh, get in mongolia and we could be doing like radio ads for a beer or something like that who knows whatever they may be into we could uh, we, we could make a little bit of money selling it to them so anyway thanks i want to shout out to all the listeners in mongolia and in uh Pakistan, thank you uh, very much for making us number 104 in the television and film subgenre of podcasting. We're, you know, right there somewhere below Joe Rogan and Oprah. We're and Michelle Obama. We're hanging out there. Uh, we're hanging out there somewhere. So in years and months past, uh, before this pandemic, I would always start the show by lighting a stogie here in my closet, but uh, I haven't been doing that lately because of this pandemic and, you know, just the optics, the symbolism of people being on ventilators, not being able to breathe. Now we've got, like here in Ohio, we had like 12,000 new cases just today. So, uh, and my mom just got it, by the way, my mom got COVID uh, just a couple of weeks ago and she's thankfully, she's on the upswing now. She avoided being hospitalized, at least to this point, um, and it doesn't look like she spread it. Uh, she lives with my stepdad and with my grandmother right now. It doesn't look like either of them got it, depending on their, how their tests went. Uh, the, the tests were negative, so that was good. I guess it went about as well as positive uh, possible, but she was feeling really, like, run down. She's still really tired here, like, three weeks after getting it. Um, so big bummer, and I was really worried about her, but... I uh, just wanted to mention that to you guys. But anyway, I haven't been smoking stogies in the closet, you know, just because of that. Just starting the show lighten up kind of feels a little like in your face, a little uh, disrespectful during this thing. So 
Maybe, who knows, maybe when January, specifically January 20th rolls around, maybe I'll light up a stogie here on the show and bring it back. But right now, I don't know, just not going to do it. That would almost feel like going out like hitting golf balls or something when there's millions of people dying around the country. That's kind of what that would feel like to me. I just, I'm not really comfortable with it. But we'll roll on and we'll get the show going. Coming up in his segment, Andy is going to, he's got a good... He's got a good piece for you. He's going to be talking about some of the worst lyrics that are like smashed into the middle of otherwise great songs. So, you know, you're listening to the song, you love where it's going, you're singing along with it. And then there's just this awful lyric that just kind of takes you out of it and you're like embarrassed by it and you just don't want to sing that lyric. Like there's just something really bad about it. And I've got a few ideas of my own as far as some of those really bad lyrics and good songs. And, um, but, but Andy has some good ones too. And, uh, I can't wait to hear which songs he's gonna he's gonna tell you about. So let's lock in, my friends. Let's get in as we always do at the beginning of the show. I always like to tell you about the greatest television show theme song of all time for this week. Every time, every new episode, I, I bring you a new greatest TV show theme song ever, and this is gonna be our 58th entry into the canon of great television theme songs. And I've got plenty more on the short list I have. It's not we're not running out. Okay, we can go beyond 100, I think, as far as the greatest TV show theme songs ever. Uh, but this is our 58th entry into the canon. And this one's unique from any that we've done before on the Stream Police. So most of us in the last month, maybe you weren't, but I certainly was. And I think a lot of us were locked into news broadcasts for the entire week of the presidential election. And I thought that it was about time we paid some respect to the news as one of the greatest TV show theme songs ever. We've never done a news theme, even though there have been some really good, catchy, memorable, classic, you know, iconic news themes in the history of TV. We've never featured a news program in this segment, but you know, that's going to change today with what I might consider to be the best news fanfare in broadcast TV history. And I'm not even going back that far. I mean, news has been an essential part of broadcast television since the very earliest days of television. Since going back to into the 40s and 50s, it really became something you could count on every single night. And it has been ever since. The networks all have their network broadcast. And when I say the networks, I mean the big three of ABC, NBC, and CBS. Uh, and whoever is the anchor, whoever, whenever they replace those anchors, it's always a big deal. It's a big story because that's still a big deal to a lot of people, even though now those broadcasts aren't nearly as uh, big of a deal as they were. So we're going to go back in time to the fall of 2006 when CBS decided to hand the reins of its historic nightly news broadcast over to Katie Couric. And when she debuted as the anchor, of the CBS Evening News, a majestic new theme song came with her. else remember that song i mean that's the thing with news themes they disappeared they're not like you're not going to see it in reruns so you had to have either heard it or be like some nerd who looks up tv news theme songs on youtube i don't know who would do that but anyway there are uh, really no other ways for you to have heard this song other than to have been there so if you watch the news 
from 2006 to 2011, you would have heard this song. And it's a it's a great one to me. The CBS Evening News itself has been on the air every weeknight since 1941. How about that? Every weeknight since 1941, there has been a CBS Evening News broadcast, a half hour that you could count on. News icons, Walter Cronkite, Dan Rather, Connie Chung. Those are some of the folks that have sat in the big chair. There really haven't been that many since 1941. There's only been like six anchors of that show since 1941. But the broadcast itself was created by another legend in news, in television news, Don Hewitt, who's the guy who actually created 60 Minutes all those decades ago. So the brand is one of the most respected in all of broadcasting, and when Katie Couric took over in 2006, the same theme song had been greeting viewers since 1991. So they had 15 years of the same theme song, and they decided, you know what, we're, we're bringing in Katie Couric. She's a big name. We got her from NBC. Um, a lot. This is a, a big deal for CBS News as far as maybe upping the ratings a little bit. So let's change the whole deal. We're going to change the graphics. We're going to change the set a little bit. We're going to change the theme song, which is something they hadn't done in 15 years. So bringing in a big name like Couric, the brass at CBS News decided to take a big step and hire a major player to write the new theme song as well. And you may have been guessing like John Williams, but it's not John Williams. This theme song was actually composed by the late, great James Horner, who was channeling all his powers in 2006 when he put this song to paper. Horner won an Oscar in 1998 for his epic score for Titanic, and I like this theme song actually about as much as anything in that movie as far as his score goes. And that was, a, that was a really good score. I mean, it's very memorable. The only thing I would say that was better as far as what James Horner wrote than this song would be My Heart Will Go On. Of course, Horner co-wrote that song. You, you can't really say anything's better than My Heart Will Go On. I mean, let's not, let's not kid each other, okay? It's one of the great songs of all time. But James Horner was, you know, pretty much a, a musical genius. And I think this song shows you what he was really capable of. I, I might be a little biased on choosing this song because I did start getting really interested in journalism and in news in about 2006. Television news, I should say, in about 2006. And I would watch Katie Kirk's broadcasts pretty regularly. Um, just, you know, really, like, for fun. I mean, I, would, I was like 18, 19 years old watching these news broadcasts just to kind of see what they did and how they did them. And I finally remember this theme song giving the whole thing like a weight that the other news shows just didn't quite have. And that was one of the reasons I stuck with the CBS Evening News was this theme song, to be honest with you. It just made the whole thing feel like this is the goddamn news. Plus, they had Morgan Freeman doing the voiceover. Remember that? They hired Morgan Freeman to do the, and here's Katie Couric, that whole thing. And so it was just, how can you beat that combination? James Horner's CBS Evening News theme was only used during Couric's run as the anchor, which only lasted until 2011. So, you know, a five-year period with this song. So if you ask me, I think they should have just kept it forever, at least for another 
10, 20 years or something like that. But those of us who watch the news during those years from 06 to 11 will always remember this song, um, at least somewhere. It'll be somewhere in our head. And I hope it brought back some good memories for you uh, just hearing it. When I think of TV news, this is the kind of song that I immediately think of. And that's why James Horner's CBS Evening News theme song from 2006 is my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. late, great James Horner. Another one of those guys who died in a small plane crash. Seems like we've, we've lost some good, uh, some good icons to these small plane crashes, and I just keep waiting for like Harrison Ford's name to come up next in some news broadcast because he's had about five or six close calls uh, over the years. I mean, it's like, dude, you're not really... Like you're not really Indiana Jones. I mean, I, ho- I hope you know that. Like you're not if your if your plane starts going down, you're. Not, I mean, you're not going to be able to like pull your whip out and like wrap it around the wing and swing out and get your, you know, uh, make make like a makeshift parachute or something. I mean, like that's not going to go that way. You're just going to die. Is what's going to happen. So, I hope he hope he realizes this. So last month on the Stream Police podcast, I started telling you a little bit about Watchmen on HBO. And I was about halfway through it at that point. I finished the show since then, and I wanted to give you my final thoughts on this, you know, HBO, this newest HBO masterpiece, as it were. Um, And I really do think it belongs to be in that conversation. I I think it's got to go right there along with the best things that HBO has ever put out. And they've put out some of the absolute greatest TV in history. And this one is kind of genre-defying. It's it's surprising in many ways, including its writing, its um, the way its characters are done, the casting, uh, the directions. It took a pretty well-established, well-known story, being the Watchmen universe. I mean, that's one of the most iconic graphic novels of all time. Um if not the most iconic graphic novel of all time. It probably is. I mean, I would say it's right there with 300 and right there with uh, The Dark Knight Returns. Those are probably the three really, like, truly iconic graphic novels that I would uh, always think of. Maybe Mouse would probably be in there, but Watchmen would probably be at the very top of the list. It's pretty much like the genre, like it's the one you think of first when you think of graphic novels. And HBO just did a tremendous job with this show from start to finish. I enjoyed every single episode. And as I told you in the last uh, edition of this show, I'm, I was a big Watchmen fan, big fan of the book. I liked the movie too, but I was a huge fan of, of the book. So I came into this, you know, as one of those guys who was like expecting to kind of be let down, but it couldn't have been further from the truth. I, I, I just think every decision they made, and I'm especially talking about Damon Lindelof, who was the creator of this series, um, and who was the guy, if you if you didn't know, he was the guy behind Lost. He was like really the main guy behind Lost, and he was the main guy behind The Leftovers, which I told you before I consider to be the best television show of the last decade. Uh, I said that in our special December edition, last December, of The Stream Police. Um, but Lindelof's a genius, and I think Watchmen is right there with his best work, which is some of the best work that we've ever seen on TV. He, he's just a, a natural with with doing TV productions. And I just think every decision they made in this show paid off. Like I wasn't mad about any of it. I wasn't let down by any of it. 
Um, I loved the ending, the final shot, the... Uh, even though I was sad to see those characters go away, and it's probably the last time we're ever going to see them because he's not you know, going to do another season. It was a, a limited series kind of thing. And he said that this was the story he wanted to tell, and he's done. And that's how you usually know that a show's going to be good when the writer had the definite beginning, middle, end in their mind, and they were able to sit down and do it. Um, and it wasn't just him that wrote it. He had a whole writing staff, different directors uh, for most of the episodes, and... Um, just a, a great cast. I just loved everything about this show. So many great twists in the plot that I did not see coming at all. Things that I did not expect. Um, and just great writing that freshened up a story that was 30 plus years old. And one of the biggest knocks against Watchmen originally. I mean, this was a, a graphic novel that was written by a British guy. British white guy. And it was animated by a white guy. It was drawn by a white guy, I should say. And... The story was very white, and when you think of old, I mean, really what Watchmen was about was it was kind of this meta-commentary on superheroes and what if superheroes really did exist in the world and how would they be treated and how would the government treat them and things like that, and and costumed vigilantes and how would people welcome them and how would the police treat them. These were, like comic book stories were pretty much, it was a white guy business. They were written by white guys, they were edited by white guys, they were drawn by white guys, they were mostly read by white guys for a long time, and there was a lot of gatekeeping going on, and, and it was a really a big white guy business. And so Watchmen was that too. It was a very white story, like everyone in the story was white, pretty much, and it was white people stuff. You know, talking like white people and just being white people and this show was so diverse and it turned Watchmen into like a black story uh which is just incredible and, and it didn't feel like forced and it wasn't um at the expense of the story and it wasn't like disjointed it made everything better richer it made it a lot more American I think than it was before um and it, it was just this whole thing was just really well done I was just impressed all the way through and a lot of what made this show so good, I mean, I, I've given a lot of credit to Lindelof and to the writers, obviously, but a lot of what made this show so good was the acting, and the cast from top to bottom just nailed it. It starts with Regina King. She's really the star of this whole thing, and she's becoming a legitimate star in her own right. She's kind of spent her entire career toiling as a um, supporting player, character actor, uh, and she's finally, you know, I mean, she's an Oscar winner now, and people know her name and know her face and I think you'll you'll definitely start to see her more as a lead actor and this was a major thing for her to lead I mean this was a huge budget uh, HBO show based on a very well-known property by a, a big name television showrunner creator uh, and she leads the show even though she didn't she doesn't have a lot of experience as a lead actor uh, and she just does a really good job. She's it, It's just impossible not to engage with her. I just find her so relatable. And she's able to be like a badass, but you buy it. You don't feel like she's like otherworldly or superhuman. She's still in this show. I mean, she's just a regular woman, essentially. She's just a brave woman, and she is tough. But she's not. there's nothing about her that, you know, you couldn't be. Like, she's just, she's just a regular person, pretty much. But... I just think Regina King plays it in a way that you just admire her and you like her and she's charming and funny, uh, but also you you believe her when she's kicking ass and when she's dropping these good lines on people and 
when she you know does need to dial in and feel some emotion you feel that as well and uh, I just thought she was a, a great pick to lead this whole thing and uh, the supporting cast was great Jeremy Irons I mean when he's when's he not great Gene Smart same thing um, but then I also really liked Yahya Abdul-Mateen, who, in, who played Regina King's husband, Cal, in the show. And he kind of took me by surprise with just how much I liked him and how much I ended up thinking about him after this whole thing was over. Because it was full of great actors that I knew, and he was one that I didn't know. Um, and he just did a wonderful job in it uh, all the way through. And it ends up, you know, in the end, being a character that has a lot of importance on it. Uh, for reasons I'm not going to go into, but uh, you you know he starts out you kind of just think he's going to be background fair, but he ends up being a really big part. So uh, they they just nailed it. They nailed the casting. They nailed everything about it. The show oozes style. The soundtrack's great. Uh, the violence in it is visceral. It feels right. Um, and there's just some really darkly funny stuff here. And there's some astute political stuff as well. And things about American history and American culture and racism and um, just a lot of really good stuff in this that I think works in the Watchmen universe because Watchmen was always about more than just superheroes. It was always a deeper social commentary, and this show is definitely that. So I think it just worked perfectly as a piece of television storytelling, and that's cool because it was a sequel to a book, but to not be done as a book and to be done as a TV show, but to be such a natural sequel, I think, was great. And, and Lindelof's idea not to just do a TV version of Watchmen, which has been tried, that people have tried to do it for decades, um, I think was great, too. Because that would have been cool, especially with a writer like him at the helm of it, but we would have known where it was going and we knew the story and we would have known what to expect. But this was something totally new. And for people who were fans of it, it, uh, you know came out of left field and we didn't know what to expect at all um but there was still plenty of fan service and things that dialed back into the old books and characters from the old book uh that that showed up but had new directions um and also for people who didn't read the book i think you know they could get something out of it but like i like i said last time i do think you need to read the book watchmen before you watch this show to really get it Uh, you can they do a nice job of of getting you up to speed and explaining things and dropping clues on you so it'll all make sense but i think you'll get more out of it if you've read that book uh before you watch this show because there is a lot of lore a lot of backstory that they go into in this show that can be a little confusing i think if you were just watching it and you didn't know who any of these people were or why any of it mattered and and why is why was Richard Nixon president so long and why is Robert Redford president now? You know, I mean, you need to have read the book to understand what the U.S. government is doing in this situation. So Watchmen right now is streaming. All episodes of it are now on HBO Max. Could not give it um, a more glowing review. Could not recommend you watch it more. Uh, Check it out if you have any interest in the things that it's about. If you have any interest in superhero stories, give Watchmen a watch. What's going on? is affecting me. It's hard to be present. Blake and the others, you sent them somewhere to help? Yes. Then why didn't you send me? Because I don't want to be alone when I die.
Another show I talked about last month but didn't get all the way through yet was Netflix's The Haunting of Bly Manor, which has been talked about a lot over the last couple of months. And, uh, you know, it landed right in time kind of for all all the scary movies to come out and for Halloween time and everything. And and Beth and I watched it. uh, And I was about halfway through last time when I told you about it, but I wanted to give you my full review on it as well now that I'm done with this miniseries as well. I was a, a huge fan of The Haunting of Hill House, which was kind of the predecessor to The Haunting of Bly Manor. It was from the same creator, Mike Flanagan, and it had a lot of the same cast in it, but it's a totally different story, totally different setting, different everything. There, there are a couple, some similarities as far as what it's about, but it's a really a completely different story. So, what I, I want to say about the, the Haunting of Bly Manor, I did not like nearly as much as I liked The Haunting of Hill House. But I think it's unfair to compare these two because there's really not a lot between them that is the same. And I think this is the problem with The Haunting of Bly Manor because I've seen other people be disappointed in it as well after they watched Hill House. And Hill House was like this terrifying and really kind of grim, stark piece of storytelling of family drama mental illness plays a huge role in the storyline um and and ghosts like real ghosts from your past and also you know literal ghosts in the sense of a a scary story you know there being ghosts that are actually there but haunting of hill house was a lot more of a straight up horror show it was trying to scare the shit out of you and it did i thought it was very scary and i thought it was one of the best things netflix has ever done and definitely the scariest thing that I've seen Netflix do, and they've kind of waded into horror quite a bit over the years. But I just thought it was terrifying. I thought it was really well done. So I go into Haunting of Blind Manor thinking this is the same thing. Like, the title's nearly the same. It's from the same guy, same cast. Like, it's going to be terrifying again. But it turns out The Haunting of Blind Manor is not really a horror story. I mean, it, it has elements of it. Because it is a ghost story, and there certainly are some jump scares, and there there's some really creepy imagery in this as well. But I would not call this a horror show. What I ended up finding out that The Haunting of Blind Manor is, is a romance, really. It's kind of like a gothic romance, like a Tim Burton kind of thing. Tim Burton g- gives you these movies, like even his Sleepy Hollow, which I love. It's one of my favorite horror movies ever. It's not really like a terrifying movie. It's more of like a romance set in a, a horror world, which is the same way kind of Beetlejuice is and even Edward Scissorhands. There are like scary, creepy things about those movies. Um, but they're not horror movies. They are like love stories, really. Uh, and even Sweeney Todd was that way as well. So this, I would compare this almost more to like something Tim Burton uh, would do, but this is even this is better than anything Tim Burton's done in a while. It's, it's really well done as far as production values, but I think I think The Haunting of Bly Manor was a victim of marketing and also a victim of being connected with The Haunting of Hill House because there's not a whole lot between them. This was really a love story in the end, and I did not expect that at all. I told you last month that I'm a big fan of The Innocents, which is the movie based on the classic story, The Turn of the Screw, which is also what The Haunting of Bly Manor is based on. So they're both based on the same story. 
but they approach the stories in very different ways. I told you the innocence was really all about sexual repression. That's the main theme in the movie, the innocence, the, um, if you don't know what the haunting of Bly Manor is about and what the innocence is about and what all these are about, it's about a, um, a woman who goes to work at this remote, this massive, very impressive manor in Britain, uh, to take care of these two children who are kind of troubled kids. Their their parents were killed in an accident, and they have an uncle who's rich but doesn't really care about them very much, and he's just distant and, and, and off in his own world all the time, but he wants to pay someone to take care of the kids so that he doesn't have to deal with it. And there are all kinds of weird things going on at this house. The last nanny that they had killed herself in very strange circumstances, and so they hire this new nanny, uh, to come and take care of the kids, and that's the where the story starts up uh, in The Innocence and in The Haunting of Bly Manor. And in the case of The Haunting of Bly Manor, it's a young American woman who's played by Victoria Pedretti. Her name's Danny, uh, and she's watching over these kids at the manor. And that's essentially the story. But in The Innocence, the woman who played the nanny was not an American. She was British also, but she was very much more buttoned up. Like she was wearing much more. It was set like a hundred years ago. It was, it was, you know, in an older setting and it was, everything was kind of Victorian. Um, and so she was a repressed person, like just not in touch with her feelings at all. And that was kind of the whole thing. Um, and the whole, the ending was very ambiguous and that was what I kept expecting, but they threw that out the window here. There's no, there's nothing in here about sexual repression. There's nothing in here that makes it ambiguous. All of it in this show is kind of obvious and it's, it's really happening and they make that clear to you. Whereas in the innocence, you're wondering the whole time, like, is any of this really happening or is it in this lady's head? Like, has she just made this stuff up to give her life some spice? Um, the fact about ghosts haunting this manor. But in The Haunting of Blind Manor, there are ghosts, and there's no question about the fact that they are there. So this it messed with my expectations completely. So I would tell you to go into this if you've ever seen The Innocence and not even think about The Innocence. Don't think about The Turn of the Screw. Don't think about The Innocence. Don't think about The Haunting of Hill House. Just go into this on its own, and you'll get some really creepy visuals. You'll get a, some nice performances, um, and you will get some good storytelling, but... Still, I did have some problems with it. I, I'm generally not a big fan of ghost stories, like just at all. Like I, those are that's probably my least favorite subgenre of horror. I just am never into ghost stories, partly because the rules are never clear to me, and I'm like a stickler for having concrete rules in horror. Like I want to know what's possible, what's not possible in the world of the movie. Uh, I'm not a, a fan of, and, and with ghost stories, it always just seems like anything can happen. Like the, the ghosts can do whatever they want, and but they're like never able to leave the property for some reason in these stories. And it's like, how do they know where the property begins? And it like property is just a made up kind of thing. Like how do they? I, I never just it never it always seems half baked to me. It always just seems convenient. Like the rules just start and stop wherever the writer wants them to to start and stop, and they don't make a lot of sense. So that ghost stories always annoy me and, and it always annoys me when there's like one character who can see the ghosts and everyone else doesn't see them and so you know everyone thinks they're nuts or something and it, it's it's everyone else is just completely oblivious that's a, always a big trope in ghost stories and that always kind of gets on my nerves so i'm not a huge fan of ghost stories to begin with this show wasn't her terrible about that stuff i do think they kind of explain the rules and why they were this way 
to a good extent, but there were definitely some frustrating moments where I was trying to figure out what was possible, what was not possible within the show's framework, so it did have that. But what really annoyed me about The Haunting of Bly Manor was how it treated its climax. This show did that really irritating thing where it stretched one moment, literally one single moment. And if you watch the show, you know which one I'm talking about. It involves Danny, and it involves the lady in the lake. They stretch this one moment out, this thrilling moment out over the course of three episodes before finally wrapping it up and showing you what happens in this moment. So you're at your penultimate episode of a miniseries. I don't think that you should suddenly spend an entire hour showing us the life story of essentially a minor character whom we really haven't seen at all to this point and we don't know at all or care about at all. And it also didn't help that that whole episode was set way back in the distant past. It was shot in dull-looking black and white. It wasn't even really good black and white. It was just in black and white for no reason, I guess because it was took place a long time ago, which, I mean, come on, how cliche can you get to, to go back? We're going to we're gonna throw you back in time, and we're going to make it all black and white. I mean, come on. Just, like, a, a little... Like, I would have done that in high school, making movies, you know? I mean, give me give me something a little bit more creative than that. We're gonna do black and white for the old, for the old stuff. So this show also had a bad habit of revolving entire episodes around side characters who really weren't that interesting uh, in their own right. And there was plenty going on in the main storyline that you wanted to see through, but then they'd spend a whole episode with a side character you didn't even care that much about. So there were some things storytelling wise I wasn't a big fan of. I think overall it was not as well done as The Haunting of Hill House. I don't think the story was as good. I don't think it went as many places, and I think a lot of it felt old hat. But uh, also, like I said, the show was a victim of its marketing, and I think it was a victim of being a uh, following up a predecessor like The Haunting of Hill House, which was so scary and so well done and so grim. And this show was not grim. There was a much more hopeful vibe to The Haunting of Bly Manor so it was probably something we needed more at this point in human history than we did something really grim again. But it just didn't work as well for me. But again, if you're going to go into it, expect something that's not quite as scary and something that's a little bit more playful romantic uh, in addition to being creepy. Because there is some creepy imagery in here that they really did well. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Amelia B. Smith, who played little Flora in the show, and I thought she really stole every single scene she was in. I thought she was wonderful in this show. Um, and also Amelia Eve, who played Jamie, and she was kind of an unknown actor, hadn't done a whole lot of stuff. Jamie the gardener. Um, I thought she was tremendous, and I hope she's someone that we see more of. She ends up being a really big character as the show goes on and I was glad of it because I thought from the moment we saw her she was probably the most interesting person in the cast so the two Amelia's Amelia B. Smith and Amelia Eve really stole this show for me I wasn't nuts about Victoria Pedretti I, I found myself liking her more as the show went on and I certainly liked her character more as the show went on uh she started out as a little bit of kind of like a maybe a Mary Sue or something at the beginning but then we got to know her a little bit more and the layers came off a little bit, but I thought Victoria Pedretti was a little bit, a little irritating in in this role, if I'm being 100% honest with you. So, this is my thoughts on, on Haunting a Blind Manor. It, it was uh, lukewarm. I was lukewarm on this one compared to uh, Hill House, where I was just like beaming. I thought it was the greatest thing Netflix had ever done at that point. So, 
not quite as excited a reaction to this one, but I wonder what you thought. Did you watch The Haunting of Bly Manor? What did you think? Was it a victim of its marketing? Was it a victim of coming after The Haunting of Hill House? I'm not sure, because there was some muscle here in the craftsmanship. But I just think they made some mistakes with the writing. I don't know that it needed to be as many episodes as it was as well. So uh, write me an email, theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. I'm talking to you in Mongolia, and let me know if you've watched The Haunting of Bly Manor. Are they able to watch uh, American Netflix shows in Mongolia? I don't know. I need to look into that. So that show is streaming for you, all episodes of it, on Netflix. You all right? Kids? When you ragged? Yeah. Well, people really, all of them. So I prefer plants. Easy to get along with. And I find if I don't like one, one looks at me kind of funny. Can always just, you know. So if this child were having advice you're after, I'd just <laughs> start there maybe. It's not so bad, right? Yeah. I cry three, maybe four times a day around here. Five, if I'm really being honest with myself. I also think I keep all these fucking plants watered. With my endless well of deep, inconsolable tears. That's how. That's what got me the job in the first place. <laughs> Look, you're doing great. You're doing great. Thank you. Anytime. All right, let's send things over to my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak. I told you, he's going to be telling you about some songs that are great songs, but they just have a really awful lyric thrown in there for some reason. You know what I mean? The writer was really inspired until they got to one line, and then they kind of fucked it up, and then they went back to being great again. I don't know what happened, but it happens more often than you would think. So anyway, take it away, Andy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. All right. Hello, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Great to be with you. I hope you're uh, staying safe, staying healthy. This uh, this pandemic thing isn't fun. 
In fact, it's a total drag. It's a boring way to live your life. But, but you know, I mentioned lately, this is really um, the year of the exception. You usually do this or you usually do that. Well, not this year. This year, this year is the exception. It has to be, right? Until we get this thing under control. So let's, let's be smart about this, friends. Let's be grown-ups about this. It's temporary. It's temporary. Anyway. My name is Andy Sedlak. I uh, oversee the music department here at, uh, let's see, Stream Police Headquarters. I've got a staff of assistants and researchers behind me hard at work month after month. They bring you content that uh, we hope puts a smile on your face. Clint and I veto a lot of their ideas. We don't pay them, uh, but they slave away because they know it's a public service. It's in the public interest. And I just want to take a minute to thank all the hardworking men and women here at Stream Police HQ. If you haven't already, please, uh, let's see, rate and review us. We're competing with uh, Michelle Obama now, so we need all the help we can get. Thank you in advance, and let's get on with it. Get on with it! You guys have probably heard me say this before, but it's really hard to write a good song. It's really hard. To write a good song. It's hard to harness creativity. It's hard to put it down into something that's tangible. Uh, There are certainly guidelines for writing songs, but there are no roadmaps. Plus, it's always evolving. Tastes change. Styles change. I mean, your own taste and style can change. Something that connects with you may not connect with other people, vice versa. So many moving parts. It is indeed hard to write a good song. Think about it. Intros, choruses, bridges, outros. Uh, Turn the drums up a little too high and it drowns out the keyboard. Leave the drums too low and the whole thing just feels weak. These are the decisions that come into play when you're in the creative process. And then there are the lyrics, right? Arguably the trickiest part of all. You can go in any direction with lyrics. Vague can work. Metaphors can work. Literal can work. work. Specific can work. Autobiographical can work. Uh, A a, a totally made-up story can work. What's deceiving is that all of these things can work. But it's hard to pull each of them off. It's hard to tell a good story in three or four minutes. It's hard to find a metaphor good enough to carry a song. Hard to write about yourself and and not sound self-indulgent. Hard to get every, every word just right. Hard to get every word just right. And that's what I want to focus on. Today I'm going to play a few songs that are good songs. With the exception of... One line, just one line that that at least makes me scratch my head. And what it all goes back to is the very notion that it is hard to write a good song because you can do everything right and screw up one line 
and people notice. People notice. So these are all songs that are perfect with the exception of one line. Wonderful songs. Some classic songs. Except there's, there's one line that doesn't work. So let's start with John Mellencamp. Jack and Diane, two American kids growing up in the heartland. Jackie gonna be a football star. Diane's debutante backseat of Jackie's car. Jack and Diane for Mr. John Mellencamp. It came out way back in 1982. It is Mellencamp's only number one song his only number one song and it is inescapable you have been hearing it for years at gas stations at grocery stores at watching tv people's houses on the radio of course you may have taken it for granted but but this one really is on the cusp of greatness and it's interesting to note that originally the song was about an interracial couple jack in the song was a black guy Eventually, it was changed, and it was simply about, you know, young love. You can see why it was a hit when you listen to it. Except there is one really terrible line in this song. Really terrible. And it takes me out of the song every time I hear it. Are you ready? Here it is. Sucking on chili dog outside taste freeze. Sucking on chili dogs outside the tasty freeze. Sucking on chili dogs? Sucking on chili dog. It's so weird. Why would you suck on a chili? I mean, it, why? what are you doing? Why say that? You could have said snacking on chili dogs. Or just eating, buying chili dogs. Sucking on chili dog. I, and, you know, I know it bothers Clint as well. We, we have talked about this. In fact, when I told him that this was my, my topic for the month, it was the first thing he brought up because we've discussed this before. Why are they sucking on chili dogs? Remember what I said about the song, how it was originally about an interracial couple? Someone talked to him about changing that aspect of the story, yet no one told him it was weird to say sucking on a chili dog? Do the suits, I mean, we all know that there are famous cases where like the public doesn't really listen hard to a song and, you know, lines get past people or whatever, but... But you would think the suits that stand to earn money off of a tune (laughs) would listen to every word of it. And no one told him that that's a weird thing to say. Just one of the weirdest lines in a song. And what makes Jack and Diane especially uh, perplexing is that the song also features just one of the, the hardest 
lines ever in a pop song. Life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. Brutal. So within this single song, you really have it all. You've got, you know, the all-time great head scratcher about sucking on a chili dog next to a line about aging that is so cold and so hard and so true and tough that it's it just sums up an expression and a sentiment that we all feel at one point or another. There's tremendous power there. And it's right next to a song to a line about sucking on a hot dog. It's weird. Hand it to John, though. He packed a lot. He packed a lot into Jack and Diane, and it was a monster hit. In spite of the uh, uh, polarization, maybe in the lyric. Now let's hear from Mellencamp himself. Here he is. Basically, what the song is about. A lot of people thought. Well, they heard. You know, it's funny when people listen to records; they only hear certain parts. That are they are they the type of listener who listens to all of it? And a lot of people thought it was just about two kids growing up. I think the message is is the uh, little line that says, "Oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone." As silly as it may seem, when I wrote the line, it kind of gave me a little bit of solid ground to realize that, and everything isn't the greatest in the world. But you learn to deal with it, so it, it turns out to be uh, positive. Okay. Over to hip hop. It's not really in vogue right now, but but I like T.I. I like T.I. And, and the song that got me into his music was Rubber Band Man. And you probably remember this song, right? I remember it, it. I remember blasting this song in high school, the high school parking lot of my Mercury Cougar. Two-door. Looked great. Except there was, there was one line. It bothered me then, and, and it bothers me now. It always has. Just one line in the song that's just like, really? You ready? Okay, here we go. Wild as the Taliban. Why is he? Why is he name checking the Taliban? First of all, it's lazy writing. You could be more clever there when describing something that's wild. Like, like that should have been a really strong line. Like, it was set up perfectly. Second, the Taliban. This song came out two years after 9-11. Two years. Why name-check the Taliban? Leave the Taliban out of it. It's like name-checking Nazis. Just don't do it. It comes out terribly. The song uh, got to number 30 on the Hot 100. And if you're wondering where the title Rubber Band Man comes from, when T.I. was a drug dealer, he wore rubber bands around his wrist. He'd peel them off and wrap up a stack of money with it when that, when that money was, was too big to fit in his wallet. So he'd peel off a rubber band from his wrist, wrap the stack of money up in it. I just don't know why you got to invoke the Taliban. It was, it, it, you know, and if it's just a straight line here or there, okay, fine. 
You know, you, you overlook lame references and rap songs all the time, but this suck, this sucker is right there in the chorus. So every time it comes around, it, he smacks you in the face with the Taliban. Wild is the Taliban. Stupid. Stupid. Could have said literally anything else. Don't try to make the Taliban sound badass. What's going on? What brings us here today? Why do they call you rubber band band? Okay, uh... Okay, well, see, uh, in a land far, far, far away called Camerton Road, um, times before I was doing what I'm doing right now, I, I, I had to... I had to kind of fulfill my financial needs in the area of manufacturing and, distri and distribution of illegal pharmaceuticals. Big words we don't even understand. Well, you know what? <laughs> don't even worry about it. Let's just say I had to keep my money, my money in my pockets neat. Well, um, speaking of rubber bands, today we are going to be making our own rubber band men. What? Now here, here's a song that is is near and dear to. The essence of my existence. No hyperbole. I hear it, and there's a bounce in my step. It is a gift from God. It is Glory Days by Mr. Bruce Springsteen. And yet, within Glory Days, within the miracle that is Glory Days, there's a line that bothers me. So unnecessary. Here it is. throw that speedball by you speedball like like why doesn't why doesn't bruce just say fastball that's the name of the pitch it's a fastball not a speedball it's right at the beginning of the song first verse like 12 seconds in off the bat pun intended <laughs> He hits you with speedball for some reason. You might say, well, you know, maybe Bruce isn't a big sports guy. Maybe he didn't know. Except, I read the man's biography. He played baseball growing up. So he definitely knew that the pitch was called a fastball. But for some reason in this song, he calls it a speedball. A speedball. Besides, you don't have to be a sports fan to know the pitch is called a fastball. It's literally the one pitch that everybody knows. You may not know a, uh, a split finger. You may not know a knuckleball. But you know a fastball. Everybody knows what a fastball is. I had a plan, was a big baseball player. Back in high school. He could throw that speedball fire. Make you look like a blue boy. I guess that's why it always kind of bothered me. It's like he went out of his way to get the name of the pitch wrong. Fastball has two syllables just like speedball. It would have fit in fine. He could have easily said it. You know, at one time I thought maybe it was like a veiled drug reference. A speedball 
like in drug terms, a speedball is a combination of cocaine and heroin. But you know when you when you take that definition and, and insert it into the song "Glory," that, that just that doesn't even make sense. It's like he just decided to call a fastball a speedball, uh, which no one has ever done. Nobody does that. And as thorough as he is in his writing process, he had to have realized it. <laughs> and, and he used it anyway. Why? He can that By the way, that story in the first verse of the song is supposedly true. According to Springsteen, and according to Springsteen himself, he actually did run into a guy that he played Little League with, and true to the song, they decided to sit down at the bar and have a few drinks. Why, Bruce? What's with speedball? Maybe if he explained it, I'd get it. That's the running theme with all of these songs, that these lines are so obviously weird, and they didn't have to be. You know? Sucking on chili dog. Okay, just, you could just eat, eating a chili dog. I mean, come on. Right? Throw that speedball button. Yeah, fastball. They're both two syllables. That works. Wild is the Taliban. You could have said anything. Rubber band man. How many songs rhyme with man? You can make that work. Easily. These songs didn't have these lines, these single lines, and otherwise great songs. They didn't have to be this weird. Uh, For Grins, here's a a clip of Springsteen playing Glory Days with um, Danny DeVito. What do we got here now? All right, all right. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Here we go. Okay, baby. Come on up. Come on up now. I think I'm going down to the well tonight. I'm going to drink till I get my fill. I'm going to fill up slow. I hope when I get old, I don't sit around thinking about it. I probably will. You want to see some of that? Yeah. Just sitting back. You can barely hear DeVito in that clip. Uh, We talked about Bruce. Now let's talk about his guitarist, Nils Lofgren. Lofgren has the distinction of simultaneously being a member of the E Street Band and Neil Young's Crazy Horse. He also launched a moderately successful solo career in the 70s and 80s. One of his uh, solo songs is called Delivery Night. And and my God, it is a beauty. It's a beauty. When it pops up on my phone, I vibe immediately. It's the type of song that could play over a, like a pivotal scene in a movie. It is, in a sense, cinematic.
Except, again, there's one line. Just one, like, where I'm like, what? When I first heard it, I thought, did he just say what I think he said? Sure enough, he does. Listen closely. He says he wet dreamed. That's what he says in the song. He says that he has a wet dream. And he says it so earnestly. <laughs> it's, it's gross. The rest of the song, elegant, majestic. And I like the idea of maybe inserting a little vulgarity into that earnestness. I think that balances things out. But boy, did he go in the wrong direction. I've never heard another song from that era make a reference like that. Song came out in 1985. It's it, it that line is so out of step. It's it's not like this is something that people said. You know, I tell this story all the time. I I when I was in college, I actually interviewed Nils Lofgren for my college radio show, and. At the time, I, I had never heard this song. And even if I did, I doubt I'd have the sack to ask him about the uh, the line mentioning a wet dream. Um, I was like 20-something, or in my early 20s at the time. I, I, I doubt it. Plus, that song was like 25 years old. But but in an alternate reality, if we were having drinks or something, I, like, I'd love to ask him, dude... Dude, why'd you why why'd you say that? Where'd that line come from? All of this again is to show that it is hard to write a great song. All of the pieces can line up, but then you botch one line, just one line, and you miss the mark after being so close. Let's do one more. This is a country song. By David Allen Coe. Clint, we have talked about this one before. The song is called The Ride, and it's about a hitchhiker who is picked up by the ghost of Hank Williams. It's a great concept for a country song. And it's nearly perfect, down to the last detail. It it sounds mysterious. Hank is such a mythical artist in country music and popular music, and this song has a mystique to it you know the singer is picked up in a cadillac in real life hank williams died in the back of a cadillac williams led a tragic life so just the the nature of a cautionary tale involving him is is fitting there's just one problem and it comes at the beginning of the song when co is setting the scene so let's let's take it from the top but i was thumbing from montgomery had my guitar on my back when a stranger stopped beside me in an antique Cadillac. He was dressed like 1950, half drunk and hollow-eyed. He said, it's a long walk to Nashville, would you like to ride, son? Did you catch that? Listen to 
Listen to how he describes the driver. Half drunk and hollow-eyed. So what does he do after noticing that he's half drunk and hollow-eyed? Let's continue. I sat down in the front seat. He gets in the car. Why does he get in the car when he just said the guy looked half drunk? It always bothered me. And like Glory Days, this, this thing is right there at the beginning of the song. It's a great peon to the downside of aspiration and a notice that some things are going to give way if, you're going to, if you are determined to follow your dream. I just wish he would have changed the, the half-drunk line. Because sounds the character in the song sounds like a total dumbass for getting in the car. He didn't know who he was. He just it was just a guy who was half drunk and he decided to sit down. I sat down in the front seat. He turned on the radio. And them sad old songs coming out of them speakers was solid country gold. He was dressed like 1950, half drunk and hollow-eyed. He said it's a long walk to Nashville. Would you like a ride? Sure. Yeah, who cares? Tired of walking. I don't care if you're sauced. It's the worst that could happen. Nearly perfect. The song was nearly perfect, but he overlooked that line. If he was just hollow-eyed, I think that'd be fine. But half half drunk and hollow-eyed? And you still get in the car? He was dressed like 1950, half drunk and hollow-eyed. William's legacy is so well documented, you could have picked any other little detail uh, about his life. And in doing that, your main character wouldn't have just seemed like a, a rube. Because he kind of has that, he, he just he kind of seems like a rube right there at the beginning of the song. Alas, the line remains, I was not consulted. He was dressed like 1950, half drunk and hollow-eyed. He said, it's a long walk to Nashville, would you like to ride, son? I sat down in the front seat, he turned on the radio. And them sad old songs coming out of them speakers was solid country gold. Then I noticed the stranger was ghost white pale when he asked me for a light. And I knew there was something strange about this ride. Are there any lines that drive you crazy? Little things that stick out? That's, that's really all we're talking about. Nothing major. These songs are all good. It's just that one line that's puzzling. Just that one line. All right. Friends, you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify as soon as you're done listening today. All you have to do is search Stream Police. Every month we add five more songs to the lineup. And here come the five this month. For the month of November 2020. Here we go. The first one is Rip It Out by Ace Freely of Kiss. That's back when each member of Kiss 
released a solo album on the same day. The the record <laughs> the record company thought fans would buy all four albums and they could cash in. It's um it did not work. But but that is that's a good song. Uh second this is Money Don't Make a Man by the Bus Boys. Times are hard for the working man. And I work so hard. And I'm doing everything I can. I know tonight that I'm not part of your plans. But I'd love to be the one to show you money don't make no Have mercy, don't let this poor boy go lonely tonight. Money don't make no man. Have mercy, don't let this poor boy go lonely, lonely tonight. Next, it's Burn and Train by Bruce Springsteen in the East Street Band. You hold on now. Nightmare by Halsey. Come on, little lady, give us a smile. No, I ain't got nothing to smile about. I got no one to smile for. I waited a while for a moment to say I don't owe you a goddamn thing. Yeah, you weren't you weren't ready for that one, were you? you? weren't ready for that one. Caught you off guard. Finally, this is "I'm Ready If You're Willing" by Johnny Horton. There's a big bright moon above, and the night's just made for love, baby. I'm ready. If you're willing, if that twinkle in your eye is a daring me to try, baby, I'm ready. If you're willing, baby, can't you see I'm waiting for you to make up your mind? Then the use in hesitating, can't you see we're wasting time? Don't you think that love is grand? Let me be your love of a man, baby, I'm ready. If you're willing. That's it. Everybody be good. Take care of yourselves. Don't do anything stupid. Thanks for voting Democrat. We'll get a handle on this thing. Clint, back to you. Peace. Peace.
mean, since Andy talks music on the show here, and we are the 19th most popular television and film show uh, podcast in Mongolia, I, I wonder if he's like the Casey Kasem of Mongolia. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's he's it. He's like Ryan Seacrest, Casey Kasem over there. Does anybody even remember who Casey Kasem was at this point? All right, moving right along. Speaking of guys who are unfortunately gone and uh, will no longer be around to entertain us, we lost another celebrity icon in the last month since we spoke. We, I mean, they've been dropping like crazy in 2020. So many great icons. Andy's told you about Billy Joe Shaver, and we lost, you know, John Prine, and we lost Jerry Jeff Walker, and there have been so many just massive people to die. Um, we've talked about Neil Pert as well, at least I did. Um, but recently we lost Alex Trebek, who was a guy that I think hit home with a lot of people, even if you weren't like the biggest diehard Jeopardy person. Alex Trebek was one of those really kind of rare ubiquitous celebrities who was so linked to one thing and Jeopardy was such a popular and just commonplace show I mean it's like Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune are like the fork and spoon of television you know what I mean I mean they're they're everywhere like they're always on in whatever market you're in they are on every single day and have been for decades and it's just like a given yeah Pat Sajak Vanna White and Alex Trebek, I mean, they've, they've been there for us forever, and they were going to be there for us forever. But Alex Trebek is gone now. I mean, he told us that he had cancer, was it a year ago? feels like it was just a few weeks ago, but he told us he had cancer, he was fighting it, um, and, and then he was just suddenly gone, and they had enough episodes filmed to last through, like, Christmas, so it's weird he's still hosting new Jeopardy shows. I, I, that, I find that very strange and kind of, you know, eerie, to have a guy still hosting the shows, even though we all know he's dead, uh, but there are new episodes coming out. It just feels kind of wrong in a, in a way, but that's the way they do it with syndicated television shows. So anyway, Alex Trebek took over Jeopardy in 1984, so he had been an, a mainstay, this Canadian guy, mainstay of American TV for more than 30 years, for my entire lifetime, and Andy's entire lifetime as well, and probably some of you out there listening, your entire lifetime, if not most of it. But I wanted to mention Alex Trebek for one reason. Not because he was on TV for so long. There are a lot of celebrities who are on TV for a long time. I mean, basically all you have to do is just not fuck up too bad. Don't kill anybody. You can get DUIs and stuff like that, but just don't do anything too bad. And you'll have a TV gig for a while as long as you're pretty steady and uh, you don't piss too many people off. And as, far as, you, as long as you keep looking good. You know, that's really all it takes to have a long television career. But I think Alex Trebek had something different that very few celebrities have. And to me, what sets him apart from other celebrities is that he was mysterious. Think about all the celebrities out there. How many of them are really, these days, mysterious? Like, how many are a mystery to you? This was a guy, though, that we saw every single night on television for our entire lives and yet I like know absolutely nothing about him I know he's Canadian and that's really all I knew about Alex Trebek all I know 
about Alex Trebek. And that's kind of all I want to know. I don't want to know everything about this guy. That's what made him so cool. He just, he could have been the biggest moron in the world, really. I mean, all he did was read these cards that were written by other people. All he needed to do, he had the answers. You know what I mean? He didn't need to know the answers. He just had to read them. He just had to be able to read. That's all he had to be able to do. Read be and be comfortable on TV, which is a skill that, you know, plenty of people have. And have nice hair. That's really all that he had to have. He didn't need to have any other skills. There's a million game show hosts out there, and that's all they do. They read. They look pretty good. They've got, you know, easygoing personalities. But Trebek always seemed like he was in a room of, like, Mensa you know, applicants, like geniuses every night on Jeopardy. But he always seemed like he was the smartest guy in the room, didn't he? And really all he was doing was reading cards. So he didn't necessarily need to be that smart, but it seemed like he was. Like he just carried himself that way. And I think he was brilliant in playing that part. I mean, you could probably consider him a great actor because he probably wasn't smarter than people like Ken Jennings. But he certainly seemed like he was every single night. I mean, you looked at him, he was like the authority on everything. And he'd be correct in their pronunciation, and he'd, you know, be going to the judges and stuff like that. And it just, and he'd be looking down on them if they didn't answer, and he had to tell them the answer. But really, all he was doing was reading. But he just seemed smart. So I didn't, I don't know his background, but he just seemed to me like this guy's got a PhD in 25 different subjects. And I think that's one of the things that made him really cool. And then he dies, and all these clips come out that have him in bloopers, like, cursing like a sailor when he's doing, you know, like, when he's doing promo shoots and stuff like that. So keep watching Jeopardy! 24 hours a day, and call this number. Yeah, dumb son of a bitch, you don't watch it 24 hours a day. There's a daily cash prize of $1,000, and fuck, no shit. So you hear that kind of thing, and it just shows you that we really didn't know this guy at all, even though he's on TV every night for decades. So that's mystery. He was mysterious. And I don't think you can really find that now in the age of social media and and in a business like television where when someone's going to get hired to host a TV show now, they have to have a built-in following. They can't come out of nowhere. They have to have like a name and they have to have like a big TikTok following or Instagram following or Twitter following or something. Yet when Alex Trebek gets hired to do Jeopardy in 1984, he had hosted a couple other game shows, but nobody probably really knew who he was. And he becomes an icon. The show made him an icon. Uh, And that's just hard to come by, I think, now. And I think celebrities are a lot less mysterious than they used to be. And Trebek was one of the last true mysterious celebrities we had because I don't I never heard an interview with him until he did his cancer diagnosis I never heard an interview with him uh, and I don't know anything about his life and that's fine with me like that makes him even cooler so I've heard about some of the replacements for him LeVar Burton which you know who doesn't like LeVar Burton but LeVar Burton's not mysterious I know him Ken Jennings Ken Jennings not mysterious you know what I mean I know him those people, finding somebody like Alex Trebek who has that essence, nearly impossible, I think, at this point. They'd probably honestly have to go to another country, I think. Get someone from another country uh, to host the show. And uh, someone that no one here knows to get that same kind of air. I don't think getting a celebrity or someone that we know from Jeopardy! to host it is going to be the answer. I think you got to get somebody that we don't know already because Jeopardy is the show and the host is just kind of there. I mean, people didn't really watch Jeopardy for Alex Trebek, but he was a 
but he was the perfect host for the show. So that's why it worked. So anyway, I just wanted to say, I think Alex Trebek had something that very few people have, and that is mystery. Man, it's hard to be mysterious in this day and age. But uh, anyway, rest in peace, Mr. Trebek. There's a daily cash prize of $1,000, and fuck, no shit. Call now and play, phone jerker. Thank you for making us all feel so smart whenever we got a question right uh, that was below the $200 line on the show any night. Cool guy. I mean, you just seem like a cool guy, you know what I mean? And the host of Jeopardy doesn't necessarily need to be a cool guy, but I think he just seemed kind of like a badass, right? And that's hard to do for a game show. Like, Pat Sajak doesn't seem like a badass. He seems nice, but he doesn't seem, like, cool or anything. I mean... He seems like kind of a dork, and I think that's what really flies on game shows is you get a a guy who's a dork usually um, or a woman who's very congenial, but Alex Trebek kind of seemed like he was a dick, and that's really rare for a game show host. Him and the lady from The Weakest Link, they're like, they're it, the the old, the British lady uh, who just (laughs) seemed like she was going to come down on your ass with a weapon if you didn't know the answer to something. I mean, like, she was lit- legitimately disappointed in you. Those, those were, they kind of had that same thing, and she was a bit of an icon in her day as well. All right, so I watched a movie uh, in the last month that I got a lot of interest on uh, when I posted about it on Instagram, because I always post in my Instagram story whenever I watch a, a new movie uh, what I'm watching. And I got a lot more messages about this one than I usually do. Usually, I, I may get one uh, about any given movie, somebody asking if it was good or giving their reaction to it, one or two maybe. But this one I got like five messages from different people um, asking about it. And the movie is Dr. Sleep. It was for, it came out in 2019. It was directed by Mike Flanagan, who did The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor. So I'm talking a lot about Mike Flanagan stuff. And it is the sequel to Stanley Kubrick's legendary movie adaptation of Stephen King's The Shining. So King wrote a book sequel to The Shining a couple years ago called Dr. Sleep. And th- but this movie is really a sequel to Kubrick's movie. It's not a, a necessarily just a sequel. Like, it's not just an adaptation of Dr. Sleep. It is a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. So that makes it really unique and interesting. And a, a lot of people messaged me and were like, I-, I was thinking of watching this, but it was, you know, it's pretty long. It's, it's two and a half hours long. It is long. The Shining was long, too. Um, you know, everybody's like, is it any good? Is it worth the time? And I'm just going to tell you flat out right now, definitely worth your time. I really enjoyed Dr. Sleep. I was very impressed with this because this could have been just uh, a complete disappointment, you know, all the way through because The Shining is has a reputation of being, you know, one of the great horror movies ever, and it deserves that reputation because it's just everything about it is is well done and the story itself is creepy and there's so many layers to it it's got that great ending it's it's got just these intense performances in it i told you last month when i was telling you about horror movies that don't have stupid characters in them the shining is one of those rare examples of somebody in wendy who makes good decisions throughout even though she's a protagonist in a horror movie and they're supposed to be stupid all the time so dr sleep picks up what Kubrick did in The Shining, and you can tell that Mike Flanagan is just paying tribute to, to Kubrick in like all, like all throughout this film, and so it's this movie is great for people who are movie nerds, horror nerds, 
people who've seen The Shining, you know, 50 times like myself who, you know, who know the shots and uh, who really love that movie, you're going to get a lot out of this because there are so many visual, like, homages to The Shining in this that you can, you know, count those up and just feel like, you know, you're revisiting some piece of movie history. And I, I think Flanagan does some really cool stuff with paying tribute to The Shining in this movie. And you might find those parts to be derivative and, and not the best parts of this movie. Um, they weren't probably the best parts of the movie because they were just kind of paying tribute, but I still liked them. And I think th visually this movie looked great. And that was one of the things that set The Shining apart. I mean, it was a Kubrick movie, so you knew it was going to look like a million bucks. And it was just going to pull you in with its visuals. But Dr. Sleep did that too. Like, he just... I think uh, Flanagan and uh, his cinematographer, Michael Feminari, just did wonderful work in this. And they've worked together several times before in the past um, and clearly have a comfort level with each other. But I, I thought this movie visually just looked like a million bucks. It looked really good. Like, they took really good care of it. And this movie gets into its characters, I think, more than The Shining does even and gets you uh, you know to care about them and and really does a lot of character work so what the story is because you might be wondering how you do how do you do a sequel to the shining it picks up on the story of danny torrance who was the young boy in the shining it picks up on him like 30 years later and now he's you know a, a, an older man and both of his parents are gone wendy has died and uh He's just Danny's on his own, basically, and he's having a really hard time. He's a, got a serious um, addiction to alcohol, and uh, so he's a really serious alcoholic, and we see him doing some other things as well at the beginning of the movie. He's just in a really bad place. Um, but he starts kind of mentally linking up with someone else who shines, which in the, in the first movie was you know people who could kind of talk to each other through their minds and do things with their minds that other people couldn't do. Uh, they had access to parts of the brain that other people didn't have. And he ends up connecting mentally, like, across the country with a young girl who also shines and has kind of the same level of power as him because people have it in varying degrees of power. But she's kind of like him. And uh, they start figuring out that other people like them are being murdered by this one woman who also has the power. And so they're trying to figure out how to team up together and stop her. And so Ewan McGregor plays Danny Torrance. Rebecca Ferguson from uh, Mission Impossible uh, Ghost Protocol. You might remember her from that. She plays the um, you know, the big villain in this movie, essentially. Uh, and uh, Kylie Curran plays the young girl who's named Abra and does uh, a wonderful job there as well. Uh, the cast of this was really good. Like, just a lot of good kind of character actors fill out this entire cast. Bruce Greenwood is in it. Henry Thomas is in it. Jacob Tremblay from Room uh, is also in it. And did uh, really good work in that show um, is also in this. There's just a lot of really good kind of character actors that fill out this cast. And it's a big cast. But this movie is very different than The Shining. The Shining was really a small movie. There's like one setting, essentially. I mean, they they drive to the hotel, and then the rest of the movie takes place in the hotel. The hotel's massive, but it's essentially a four-person movie. You got Danny, you've got uh, Jack, you've got Wendy, and you've got Dick. And they're like the four characters in the, in the Shining, pretty much. 
a couple of the other ghosts as well. But they're really the four characters who have, you know, things to say and things to do in the story. Um, and that's it. That's the whole movie. It, it's just a one big kind of character study, small cast movie that you could do into like a stage play. But Dr. Sleep is a big story, sprawling cast, takes place across the country, takes place over a longer span of time. Um, and there are kind of a lot more widespread implications for more people in this story than there were in The Shining. So it's a lot more ambitious, I think, this movie is than The Shining was. So I think it was interesting, and I think it was a, about as good a way as you could do a sequel to a movie that's so well done because it's just different enough, but also pays tribute to you know what is such a beloved and classic movie uh, and such a tour de force of a movie also. Uh, and, and Mike Flanagan does some interesting things here because he does show Wendy... In the movie, as you know, we get to see some more scenes with Danny as a young boy, and we get to see more about his childhood. He also brings back Jack Torrance, but in this movie, they're not played by Jack Nicholson uh, and Shelley Duvall. He's got different actors playing them, uh, so and they look enough like them. Like Henry Thomas ends up playing Jack instead of Jack Nicholson playing him. And I read a, a thing where Mike Flanagan said we thought about getting Nicholson to do the kind of like de-aging thing and we'd have him play the part but we'd just de-age him but he said he thought the technology was like good but it's not good enough to where people aren't going to be sitting there like picking it apart and thinking how weird this is uh and he pointed to Rogue One and the way they did that uh in that movie and and he was he's right I mean because it is weird it still looks kind of fake when they do that it, it's cool and I think it's getting there but it is, does still look fake so he wanted you to not be pulled out at all and instead, he just got different actors to play them that look enough like him, act enough like him, to where you're not sitting there thinking the whole time about, you know, Shelley Duvall and, and Jack Nicholson, who are, you know, much older now. So I thought uh, he, he made a, a really good choice uh, in that case, uh, and it doesn't distract at all. And Ewan McGregor just, he's a guy who, I mean, he pretty much never misses. He's good in everything. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a musical like Moulin Rouge and he's actually singing um, or like kind of a dark comedy like Train Spotting or the Star Wars movies where he was, you know, really the best part of those those prequel movies. Um, he just always does good work. Like, I'm never disappointed when I go to see you and McGregor movie. I never feel like he didn't give me what I was paying for. Um but in this movie, I felt like he particularly dialed himself in. Like, you could tell he took it seriously. He didn't treat this like some jerk-off where he's just going to make money and, you know, it's like, this is cool, I'm on. I'm doing a Shining sequel. Like, he took it seriously, which is a key to making horror work because so many actors don't take it seriously or treat it seriously, and writers don't either. And, and, and this movie was done in a serious way. And I think McGregor really gives it a his all and and he you know pulls your heartstrings a little bit in this performance i think it's a powerful really good lead performance which is rare in a horror movie um and this is kind of a character piece because danny is explored uh, at greater depth in this movie than he was in the shining so uh i was a big fan i really liked dr sleep i, I think it, it's definitely long but i didn't have a problem with it at all i actually bought ended up buying the director's cut which is three hours long and i'm looking forward to watching it now because I have no problem with a long movie as long as it's done well and keeps me engaged, and it did. But I will say, there's some stuff in this movie that was horrifying, and especially when it comes to children, uh, children being killed and being tormented. Uh, 
actually Beth couldn't even watch any more of it with me. She's like, we've watched so many horror movies over the years, the scariest movies you can imagine, and she loves them all. But she couldn't watch like past the first like hour of Doctor Sleep because it disturbed her so much. This one scene that involved Jacob Tremblay's character, and uh, it was it was hard to watch. And I think now you know now that we've got Emerson, I mean the, those scenes just hit you a little harder when you have a kid than when you didn't. Um, and it was kind of more abstract. But now you think about your own kid, especially your, he, uh, our son. You know, kind of looks a little bit like him. We could see him in there, so. It was it was disturbing, and Tremblay plays it in such a uh, just heartbreaking way. Uh, but yeah, there's some really brutal stuff in this movie. It's not uh, a walk in the park. I think there's a lot more stuff in this that'll freak you out than there was in it, um, which I was really disappointed by. So I think Doctor Sleep is scarier than it uh, for sure. I mean, it doesn't have the clown like real obvious stuff, but it's got some really uh, just violent things that will mess you up if, if violence gets to you and especially violence against children which is a, a central part of the story here so i really like dr sleep i tell you it's it's certainly worth your time i had a lot of people wondering about that so you can check it out uh I, when i watched it it was streaming on hbo max and i'm not sure if when you're listening to this it's still going to be there but just search around go to just watch and uh, see if it's streaming anywhere um or, or pick it up for a rental because I think you will really like it. Just give it time because it's, it's a long movie, two and a half hours. So you'll be in for a night. But uh, I think you'll like it. It's creepy, really well done, serious filmmaking, um, and well acted all the way from top to bottom. I, I, I really enjoyed it. We never wanted to see snow again. So we lived in Florida. Tiny place, but it was comfortable and we were happy. I was 20 when she died. And back then, I saw, when someone was going to die, I saw flies, black flies, death flies, I called them, circling people's faces. And in those last weeks, she was covered, her whole face. I could barely see her eyes. And I, tr I tried to comfort her, but I could hardly look at her, and she saw that. Maybe something warm to push away such unpleasantries. Don't you want to hear about it? She was your wife. I think you've mistaken me for someone else. I'm just a bartender. Oh, yeah. Just Lloyd the bartender, pouring joy at the Overlook Hotel. I'll pour whatever you like, Mr. Torrance. I don't really understand why that one had such kind of a tepid reaction from critics and even from audiences when it came out, but especially from critics, I, I really thought uh, this was well-done horror. And I think Mike Flanagan is a serious horror lover and horror director. It's always good to have somebody like that working in horror. And speaking of people who take horror seriously, I want to tell you about the best thing I watched this month. I always like to tell you, I watch a lot of stuff every month, but there's always one that stands out as the absolute best. And it's a favorite that I went back to this month, 1973's The Exorcist. And this movie, man, I hadn't seen it in probably like five, six years, just hadn't watched it in a little while, and, and wanted to watch it again as, as Halloween was coming up. But this movie is just in a league of its own to this day. You hear about The Exorcist all the time, but you, I mean, you got to believe the hype. This is one of those rare ones that lives up to it and exceeds it. I think the script is essentially 
perfect. The atmosphere, unbeatable. And you've got that raw 1970s production style that you cannot replicate today. Just can't be replicated. Movies from the 70s look a certain way, sound a certain way. No other decade has that kind of really just raw, like, film school style. And even though these movies are being made by studios, everyone just kind of, like, well, not everyone, but there were certain directors who who fed into that. And William Friedkin... Uh, who directed The Exorcist, is one of the essential 1970s directors, and he did. He he's he was a notoriously brutal director to work with. Like, anyone who ever worked with Friedkin hated working with him. I mean, he would just torment his actors. He You know, he's, he's shooting guns, like starter guns, near their head to get, you know, scares out of them. He's, like, hooking them up to harnesses and having them fly against the wall, like beating the shit out of them to really get pained reactions out of them. I mean, Friedkin, not a nice guy to work with. But he will get some great performances out of you and make some incredible movies. Uh, he's one of those directors I just absolutely cherish. But The Exorcist is, I mean, probably his masterpiece. I think he does everyone a favor in this movie because all the actors are just kind of at the end of their respective ropes. And you can see it in every frame that he's got him in. The imagery in this movie is just unforgettable the opening shots in the iraqi desert the infamous staircase next to the house where it all kind of happens in washington dc the scenes of the actual exorcism which only take up about 10 minutes of the movie of like a two hour plus movie um but those are the scenes everyone thinks of because they're just unforgettable uh it's just a remarkable movie that honestly going back and re-watching again with a, a more intense eye than i even had before when i watched it last I, could, I can't find any faults in this movie. There's nothing about it I don't like. There's nothing about it that I think doesn't work. I think every choice is well made. The character work that they do early on pays off in huge ways when things finally go off the rails. I mean, you really do care about Father Karras, and you really do care about Reagan, and you care about her mother, and you even care about you know the Max von Sydow old priest character uh, you get to know him a little bit and just to kind of how serious a guy is and how much how seriously he takes these things these character this character work is done early on and it's deliberate and you're wondering come on when are we gonna get to the scares but that's the genius of this movie because when you do it all really works and when people start getting hurt and dying you really feel it because you really like these people i i just think father Karras has to go down as one of the best reluctant heroes that we've ever had in cinema. He's right there at the top of the list for me. Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, great chemistry between them as a mother-daughter pair. Just everything about this movie works. It, it's it's one of the ultimate slow burns. It's one of the great movies ever made. The Exorcist from 1973. It's the best thing I watched this month, and it's one of the best things that I've ever watched, period. for me tubular bells come on one of the great uh you know movie like musical themes ever every time i hear it i get chills
All right, let's talk about some movies that are streaming now for you. I always like to send you out the door with some recommendations that you can add to your queues. So I'm going to give you two movies on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and HBO Max. And when I say Amazon, I mean Prime Video. So if you have a subscription to Prime Video, I like to give you something funny and something serious. First off, let's start on Netflix. Let's go with something funny from 2018, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Probably the best superhero movie that's been made in the last five years. I mean, I liked it. I really liked Endgame, and um, I've liked you know many of the Marvel movies. But Spider-Man Into the uh, Spider-Verse um, was just kind of in a league of its own. Really fun. Shows you exactly why animation is such a great uh, medium for doing these kinds of stories. Just the things that you're capable of pulling off in animation that you can't do in everything else. I think this this movie pushes animation to its extremes as far as the colors that pop out and the crazy stunts and and everything else. Just the way they make it look like a living comic book. Um, and the story is so meta and it's just cool. And there's just a lot of good characters in it and. You know, it, it's just a, a really cool movie. I loved it. It's a great soundtrack. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So fun. Uh, check it out right now on Netflix. Something serious for you. Let's go to 2015. How about Steve Jobs? This is one of Aaron Sorkin's kind of hidden gems. A lot of people, this isn't like necessarily the first movie people think of when they think of Aaron Sorkin's career, but it's definitely one of his best. I think the script on it is really well done, a unique way to tell the story of someone very famous. What it does is it chooses three moments from Steve Jobs' life that were uh, his career that were important moments in his career, and he just goes deep into those three moments and tells you the story of who Steve Jobs was just in these three moments of his life. We don't go back to his childhood. We don't see him at the end of his life when he's on his deathbed. We just see him in these three important moments of his career uh, involving Apple. And um, I think the story was, uh, the movie was magnificent. I loved it. Danny Boyle directed it. It was one of my favorite movies when it came out in 2015. And it's it's still just a really good drama that I think could really work as a stage play, which is where Sorkin got his start um, in, you know, writing A Few Good Men as a play. And I think this was a throwback to what he kind of started out doing in these dialogue heavy small character study pieces so steve jobs on netflix if you missed that one check it out if you're especially if you're a big sorkin fan if you're a big dialogue fan even if you don't care about steve jobs that much just give it a watch i'm not a huge like i don't worship steve jobs or anything but i really liked that movie and michael fassbender come on how can you beat him he's one of the great actors of all time Prime Video. How about something funny for you on Prime Video? 2002's The Royal Tenenbaums. This was a movie that got me into Wes Anderson. It was kind of the gateway into his world. I had never seen a Wes Anderson movie before. Back, I think I saw it when it came out in 2002. It was one of the first DVDs I ever had. Um, I still have it to this day, that same copy. It was definitely the first Criterion Collection DVD I ever had. I know that. Uh, this movie's just cool. There's really nothing like it. it it's um, it's like a movie on, or it's like a book on film. Um, I've always felt, and the the cast is fantastic. Ben Stiller does some of the best work of his career. So does Gwyneth Paltrow, um, and just a cool movie. It's unpredictable. You never know where it's gonna go. A great family drama comedy that only Wes Anderson could pull off. Very unique, um, uniquely Wes Anderson, I should say, which kind of all of his movies are, but this one really sums up what it is about him that so many people like 
So the Royal Tenenbaums is right now on Prime Video for you. Something serious on Prime Video, I'm going to give you the, the pairing of Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 from 2003 and 2004. Quentin Tarantino at his just most uninhibited, uh, possibly weirdest, throwing the kitchen sink at you in terms of cinematic styles. He's got everything from anime to kung fu movies to mother-daughter stories to you know, kind of on the lamb kind of stuff to revenge films to, uh, I mean, all, all kinds of stuff. Heroic odysseys. There's everything that you could want is in these two movies. And they're so well done and so fun to watch. I get chills every time uh, I watch the ending of Kill Bill Volume 1. I think it's one of the great endings in movie history. And then Volume Two is even better, I think, as a movie uh, from top to bottom. They're just—they're both really good, really cool movies. If you never watched them, check them out on Amazon Prime Video. It's kind of Tarantino at his just most powerful. I think he just—he kind of does it all there. And Uma Thurman, man, I miss her. She's fantastic in in those movies. They were—they were literally written for her, and she does a great job as the the bride. All right, let's go to Hulu. Something funny for you. How about from 1985? Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yes, Pee-wee Herman's movie, directed by Tim Burton. This was like the movie that put Tim Burton on the map, and it's one of his best movies of his career. It's got so much heart. It's also so f- actually funny um, as well. And, uh, you know, like at the end of the movie when Pee-wee's life gets ended up being made into a movie in the movie and James Brolin play, plays Pee-wee Herman. And that's just so funny. And I think the whole thing is just really well done. Um, it's got some great visuals. It's got some great music. It's just full of whimsy. It's The opening is really cool. It, it's just a cool movie. And there's not really many movies like Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And it is on Hulu right now. Also on Hulu, something serious. How about 2019's Hail Satan with a question mark? This one's not even really that serious. It's also kind of funny, but it is, you know, it's about American society and there's some serious things to cull from this. I reviewed this movie when, uh, in the episode after Beth and I got back from Ireland, this was a movie that we went to a art house cinema in Ireland and uh, we saw Hail Satan. And I told you about it in the episode when we got back. Uh, and, and kind of told you that I thought it was worth your time. And I still think it's worth your time, but now you can find it on Hulu. It was a little harder to find back then. Anyway, Hail Satan is about the Satanism movement as a religion, but really what Satanism is is just atheism, but they gave it uh, you know a name as a religion because in America... Uh, you know, atheists don't get much respect, much credit, don't count for much politically, even though there's so many of us out there. And yes, I'm among that group, but it, it's just like a group that most politicians and people ignore. But this movie shows you that if you put it into the guise of Satanism, then all of a sudden people pay attention to you and you can get some of those legal loopholes and some of those res- some of that respect and some of those rights that uh, our government loves to pay to religious organizations. So it's just kind of about hypocrisy and, you know, how the United States is so closed off as far as religion goes, even though this was a country that was founded on the idea of freedom of religion, freedom from religion, uh, but how we have kind of become a country ruled by religious fanatics. That's what Hail Satan's all about. So that's right now streaming for you on Hulu. A lot of good stuff uh, in this movie and a lot of interesting characters seen in it as well. Uh, one bonus pick on Hulu for you, if you have kids, Curious George from 2006 is streaming, and we watched this with Emerson for the first time. I, I had never seen this one. It was so sweet, cute, great music, um, and just fun. 
and again, full of whimsy and really, I think your kids will, will really like it. So uh, if you have young kids, you know, like under five years old, probably maybe a little bit older than that. Um, definitely like under 10, check out Curious George with them on Hulu. It's a, it was a really cute movie and really fun. And finally, on HBO Max, they always have a great movie selection on HBO Max. Just another reason why that service is really good. Something funny for you from 2017, the Lego Batman movie. Andy will agree with me on this one. Really funny. Um, This is a movie that's perfect for movie nerds and comic book nerds because there's so much pop culture references in this and so much picking apart of movies and superhero movies and Batman movies and the way that character is presented. This movie, the jokes fly at you at a pace that's almost like the naked gun. It's just constant jokes. Um, So watch the Lego Batman movie, but turn the subtitles on because you're going to miss jokes if you don't. Um, It's animated beautifully, just like the Lego movie was. Uh, And the story's cool. It's a, it's a, a cool Batman story that could only be done in the Lego style. So that one is for you on HBO Max right now. Even if you're just an adult, like that's not a, it's not really a kid's movie. It's a movie kind of for just people who like Batman. And I think it pays tribute to the character, but also makes fun of the character at the same time. And that's something that character could stand a little bit more of. And finally, something serious for you on HBO Max, 2003's Mystic River. About as serious as it gets and about as good as it's ever been from director Clint Eastwood. What a powerful movie uh ensemble cast that's just fantastic i think sean penn does the best work of his life in this movie tim robbins uh, arguably does the best work of his career in this movie also everyone just locked in 100 percent. this is one of those movies you can't believe didn't win best picture uh when it came out back in 2003 but i think it was up against uh i think it was out the year that return of the king came out so nothing else had a like a chance a snowball's chance in hell to win best picture that year but Mystic River is certainly a movie that would have been worthy of that trophy. Just a, a, a powerhouse with an unbelievable, like, jaw-dropping ending. Kevin Bacon's really good in it as well. So check out Mystic River if you missed it. The ultimate Boston crime movie that so many other movies have ripped off. Mystic River was like, that's that's the one when you think of those great Boston crime movies. I like it. I'll take it over Gone Baby Gone. Even though that one's good too, Mystic River's a little bit better if you ask me. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. It's been a blast talking to you, my friend. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. Uh, we'll talk to you again in a month. Uh, take care of each other. I hope you have a good holiday season. Don't go do too much. Don't travel too much. Be safe. Wear a mask out there, man. And uh, spread the word about the show in case you know anybody who you think might enjoy what we talk about here on the stream police but if you know anybody in mongolia you don't need to spread the word because they've been spreading it like crazy number 19 in mongolia baby anyway i'm clint davis find me uh on instagram and twitter at mr clint davis and you can email me at the clint davis at gmail.com you can reach andy on uh, instagram at andy sedlak and you can hit him uh with an email at sedlakjournal at gmail.com we'll talk to you guys in a month until then stream on Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.